Amen. Okay, well, a little late start, um, but uh, we're there. So today, I uh, wanted to talk about the doctrine of the knowability of God, the knowability of God. I kept on I kept on speaking that into my computer because I used like a voice thing that helps me speak my lesson out now. It's really cool. And I kept on writing, noble that. <laughs> you know, the noble that everywhere. So I had to go back and edit everything. So on that note, if you ever get a text from me, anybody, and it says like crazy stuff. Some crazy stuff, profanity. Yeah, I've got, I've got that same text thing. We know you, John. I just, it sends. So. I know. I, I got one that I called Trish like crazy or something like that. I'm sorry. Trash. You called me trash. <laughs> trash. Hey, Trash. I get that a lot. What's up, Trash? I get that a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So we gotta, we gotta be, be careful of that too. Um, okay, well, <clears throat> the reason why we have to start here, you know, is because basically we need to, we need to believe in the fact that God is not only, you know, who He is, but that He's knowable. And so it's almost like the knowability of God presupposes our theology, you know, or or our theology rather assumes the knowability of God. You know, if God is not knowable, then all of our theologizing is in vain. I mean, we can talk about uh, we can talk about God. We can talk about the Bible. We can talk about theology. But if God is in truth not really knowable, um, as many people believe, uh, what are some maybe some some systems of thought, religious, philosophical, or anything like that that maybe would teach that God is not knowable? Islam. Yeah. Islam. Okay, right, and some and some Muslims you'll you'll talk to them. Some Muslims they will they will tell you that there's a passage in the Quran that talks about, you know, that they will live in the presence of Allah and that He is knowable to a certain extent. But yes, it, by and large, in 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 a Muslim theology, it's um, it's the transcendence of Allah that really, uh, you know, sort of trumps everything else about God. Is that God is so other, He is so detached from us and uh, he is so transcendent, he's so majestic, right? That he's he's too majestic to, to interact with men directly, right? So yes, and, and there is definitely that problem with Islam is that, is their God really knowable, you know? Who, what else, you guys think of any other systems of thought that teach an unknowable God or that God is Somehow. Right. Yeah, I mean Buddhism. Um, you know, Bo- Buddhism maybe uh, a bit of more complicated theology. You know, or, or philosophy. You dropped something there. Um, but the the idea that uh, God is really kind of like an impersonal force. He's not really a person. You know, Brahman is sort of like a being that is sort of absorbing everything back to himself, you know what I mean? And that's kind of the goal of Buddhism. The goal of Hinduism is to be absorbed back into the all-pervasive being, essence, the oneness of all things. Um, yeah, that's right. And and that doesn't really help because it doesn't tell us, like, okay, who is Brahman? What is he like? You know what I mean? Um, what, does he, what does he do for me? How does he speak to me, you know? What about deism? You know, we've talked about deism a lot. Deism is the idea that God is there, right? But he and he might have wound up the universe, and he was like, you know, he was such a brilliant engineer that he just wound up the universe exactly the way it needed to be, right? And then he stepped back and let it go. But he's such a brilliant engineer that 
that he can let it go and every little meticulous providence is going to work out exactly right. But the problem with that is that God is removed and detached ultimately from his creation. So once again, it's difficult to say that we really know God in deism or that's even important to know God in deism. I mean, if you really believe that God is not involved in your life, that he really cares at all what you do on a day-to-day basis, right? I mean, how is that going to affect your life? I'm going to say it's going to affect your life in your holiness, right? It's going to affect your life in your faithfulness. It's going to affect everything, your conduct, your ethics, everything, because, you know, if God's not really watching, he's not really involved, he doesn't really care, you know? I mean, that's going to really have an effect on how you live, (laughs) you know? Um, There's only so much moralism is going to keep you accountable to do, you know what I mean? I mean, to know that a personal God is intimately involved in all of your ways is a lot different than an impersonal force or something like that. But, um, but, and so, you know, we talk about God being knowable, and that's absolutely right. Um, and how is God knowable? How do we know God for certain? How do we know God for certain? Huh? Through His Word. Through His Word, okay, that's one avenue. Through experience, okay. Anybody else? Hmm? I told Romans one argument that we all know him. He's made himself known through wisdom made, so we're in the image of God and he gives us these natural faculties that can't really make sense of anything without him. You know, we see him through what's been made. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, according to Scripture, God has made himself known in different avenues, you know, through, through, through the Word of God. Obviously, that's the supreme way of knowing God, right? Through creation, that's another way that we know God as we look around and we see the things that he's ordained, okay? And through experience, we have an intimate, immediate knowledge of who God is. He's eminent. He's with us personally. So that's more of an existential knowledge of God, right? It's internal. It's within. Um, so... We know God, but here's the question. How much do we know about God? How much do we know about God? Uh, I would suggest that even though we know God, we don't know him fully. Right? That is to say that the Bible maintains a, a different doctrine of God. Not just the knowability of God, but also the incomprehensibility of God. I remember when I was a young Christian, I bumped up against that word for the first time. I felt so smart when I learned it. Incomprehensible. I thought that was such a great word. Anyway, uh, God is to some degree incomprehensible. So I'm going to put all of us to work today. I feel like we haven't been interacting with the text enough. So here we go. Um, maybe, uh, uh, Chris, maybe uh, you can read Job 11, verse 7. Um, K-Dub, you can read um, for us Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 18. Uh, maybe a longer one. Uh, we can make uh, Brother Juan work a little harder. Uh, Psalm 139, Juan, you want to read Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6? And these are all passages that have to do with the fact that God, as great as he is, is not fully known. That, that, that means he's incomprehensible still, even though we have his word, even though we have his spirit within us, even though we have such a marvelous testimony in witness in creation, there is still that element of God that is incomprehensible and beyond us. Uh, and, and the fact that he's still, yeah, he still is transcendent. Okay, okay, let's let's rattle those off. Chris? Job 11, 7 says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? I mean, think about that. We talk about, you know, do we know the limits of the universe, right? 
And scientists theorize, like, where, what is, the, what is the universe end as a system? We know there is an end; it's not infinite. But where is the edges of the universe? I mean, as hard as that is to even fathom, you know, I would say Job is saying that God, even more so, how infinite are all of His ways? You know, how hard it is for us to just even begin to fathom the being of God to try to harness, you know, His depths and to discover the depths of God. Um, Really remarkable. Um, let me just read, uh, before we get to K-Dub and Juan, let me just read a, a passage, a correlating passage, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Talking about the mysteries of God have been revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So there, it is only God's own Spirit that is capable of, of searching out the depths of God and then revealing them to us. Okay, then. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Now that's very important, right? Because there, what, what, what Isaiah is saying there is that there's a, there's a point in time where an analogy of God will run out, where it's just not possible to make an analogous comparison of God with anything else. <laughs> he, he exceeds all metaphors. You know, he is so great and infinite. And Juan's got a big one here. So. <clears throat> o Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such a knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain to it. That's right. It's high, I cannot attain to it. Spoken very beautifully from the King James. I like that. That's right. I mean, he's, he's so far, you know, in verse 3, he says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. And so they're just talking about God, you know, he's, he's so meticulous in his providence, he knows every little thing about us, you know, he knows every little thing about us. Okay, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's keep going here. Uh, not only is God, um, not only is God knowable, but I would say what we know about God is real knowledge, Okay, real knowledge. It's not that we just know some idea about God and hope that that has some correlation to who God really is. Okay, that we imagine that there is some sort of relationship to our knowledge, to his knowledge. I would say, no, we actually know God in truth. Our knowledge of him is real knowledge. It's not just a metaphor. Okay, that's liberalism. Liberalism tries to chalk everything up to metaphor. Oh, we just have sort of a metaphorical understanding of who God is, a metaphorical interpretation of the things of God, and, but we don't, we, can't, we don't know him for, for certain. We don't know him in truth, okay? And this kind of brings up an old debate uh, dealing with um, the knowledge of God and epistemology. It's almost like there's two, there's two ways to talk about this. What we know about God, we have to ask the question, are our thoughts about God, are they God's thoughts? Okay. So what type of knowledge is that called if our thoughts are exactly God's thoughts? You know, have you heard of this before? Is that correlated? It's close. Uh, 
Univocal. Is that how you spell that? Univocal. Yes. No. It looks like um. No, that's an N. Don't be deceived. It's univocal <laughs> knowledge. Okay. Versus. And there's a maybe this can help us. Analogical. So, univocal knowledge means that kind of like unison, right? Our knowledge is one with God. So we think exactly the thoughts that God thinks when we think true thoughts about God. They are actually his thoughts as well. That's what makes them real. That's what makes our knowledge of God correct, is that when, when we think of God's knowledge, we are actually thinking the very same type of knowledge that God is thinking. Okay. However, the other thing is that our knowledge is also been thought of as being analogical. That means that our knowledge is like God's knowledge. It is not the same as God. Uh, it, it, God, because, see, th this is what's going on in this division of epistemology, is univocal knowledge is trying to say, look, our experience is real. It is real. It's not just an analogy. Okay? However, analogical knowledge is trying to protect the, the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. He's trying to, analogical knowledge is trying to say, God is so other. God's ways are so infinite, right? That we cannot possibly have one single thought that we think on par with the thinking of God. You see the difference? So in the one sense, we're trying to protect God's transcendence. On the other side, we're trying to protect man's knowledge, that we have true knowledge of God. And this is sort of a debate that you know uh, theologians fight over. I would say it's almost like a blend of both. I would say our understanding, our know, that God's knowability is such that when we think thoughts of God rightly, according to his word, they are in keeping with God's own mind. They are in keeping with God's own mind. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Somebody look up the word univocal, because I'm going to scorn all of you for laughing at me. Okay. <laughs> K-Dub's interested. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 2, right? Um, this is precisely where uh, the apostle just got done talking about that the Spirit searches the depths of God. He, verse 10, right? And that we have a true spiritual knowledge of God. Why? Because, verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who knows God's knowledge, really knows him? Okay? And then he says that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Univocal. Univocal. So we do have, to some degree, a univocal knowledge of God. That our knowing is, it is the type of knowing that God knows. To an infinitely lesser degree, don't be deceived. <laughs> but it is true. Yes, sir. Would, would our univocal knowledge be confined to the scriptures and what the scriptures say? Or is it, because anything that's not scripture is going to be analogical, is that right? That's right. Okay. 
Yeah, that's right. That's why I said whenever we think something in keeping with God's word, in keeping with his truth, then we can know we're having, you know, uh, the same type of knowledge that God has. Okay. Right? So does that mean like unambiguous? Yeah. Well, because it says it only, only has one meaning. Okay. Having only one meaning. Having only one meaning. Un unambiguous? Yeah, that yeah, that's right. There's no ambiguity. It's one. Right? It's, that, that would be an O then, if that's the case. Where? Here? Yeah. That is. That's an O. Oh. Don't pay no attention to the I man behind the curtain. Okay. <laughs> okay. That wasn't an A. That was an I at first. So. <laughs> no, I thought it was an A too. No, 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 no. It was an I that it stuck out there. Now we're getting to some deep theology here. You know, it was an I that was sticking out too far. So, needless to say, I think it is right for us in both instances to say our knowledge of God is the knowledge of it is it is God's knowledge. It is we are thinking the thoughts of God after Him. We are thinking God's thoughts. This is what God Himself thinks. God thinks God, God thinks that Jesus is the Son of God. For us to think that Jesus is the Son of God is exactly what God thinks. However, to the degree that God knows Jesus as the Son of God is infinitely higher than what we do. And uh, here's the thing. Every single thought, and Wayne Grudem actually points this out. Um, uh, he, he, he points this out when he talks about the incomprehensibility of God. Listen to what, what Grudem says. He says, it is, not it, is, it is not only true that we can never fully understand God. This is what these folks are trying to protect, right? It is also true that we can never fully understand any single thing about God. Think about that. We can never fully understand any single thing about God. His greatness, His understanding, His knowledge, His wisdom, His judgments. He, uh, Grudem says, they are all beyond our ability to fully understand. So we, what, what, what are we doing here? We are protecting a greater distinction when we talk about these things. A greater distinction that exists, and I should have left the line up because there is a division, right? You have the creator up here and the creature, right? Theologians call this the creator-creature distinction. There is a difference. He is infinite. He is transcendent. We're not. And we're going to see this even with the attributes of God as we get into the attributes of God that because of our, because of our creatureliness, okay, uh, what what do you notice in the word creature to the word creator? What do you notice? Is there a similarity? Is there a similarity? Yes. Is there a difference? Yes. Right? So just like there's a similarity in the, ver in the word itself, there is a similarity in God to his creatures. Those are called the communicable attributes of God. Yes, sir? No, no. How would Clarkians view that then? Do they have the distinction? Like in, I mean, I'm sure there's distinctions in some parts, but like as far as the knowledge of God, how do they clearly define what those distinctions are without logically taking it to an ultimate conclusion? Of well, well, I don't know. I don't know about all those connections. I just, you know, you've introduced Clark, which is, you're talking about Gordon Clark. Yeah. 
And Gordon Clark is famous for his his um, his strand of presuppositional apologetics that stress the the univocal knowledge of God uh, to to probably to a fault. He went so far as to say that God is nothing but proposition. So he went back to the divine logos and basically said, like God, you know, you know, our knowledge of God is such that what 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 the human experience is is a reflection of the being of God. This is basically nothing but precept proposition. So it's almost almost made in God impersonal, like you're saying deism. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's you know that's going way beyond our scope here today. But uh, Van Til was a little bit more balanced. You know, Cornelius Van Til was kind of a competing philosopher to Gordon Clark, and he would say, no, our, our, our knowledge is best thought as analogical, you know, and he was very zealous to protect the uniqueness of God's transcendence, you know, and these That's two, these two where, were where, battling it out. Where would they draw? I think Clark would obviously acknowledge a creator-creature distinction, of course, especially with the attributes of God. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's really in dispute. Pretty much all Reformed theologians are agreed as far as the the yeah the distinction between you know uh, communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. You know, which you know these things are really important because it's really amazing to it's kind of like the perfect balance, right? God is like elevating our creatureliness so that we don't think that because we're creatures we're so infinitesimally insignificant, right? That we have no meaning almost, like we have no dignity, we have no worth, we're so we're so base. And sometimes like Puritan prayers can go that far, you know, where we're trash, you know, we're we're worthless. You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, I suppose, you know, you can quote, you know, Romans seven, you know, Paul says, In my flesh nothing good dwells in me. Certain statements like that. But we can't go so so far that we lose the Imago Dei, the image of God in man, that we lose the whole reason why we have meaning in the first place, you see? And so, yeah, this distinction is very important, but the connection is also very important. We are his creatures, and because we are his creatures, we reflect his likeness, and we're like him in, we're like him in many, many ways. Um, <clears throat> I like what Job uh, talks about in terms of the knowledge of God, getting back to just the knowledge of God being understood, but still remaining incomprehensible. Remember, Job says, how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? He goes on to say, these are the mere edges of his ways, the mere outskirts of his ways. So just think about that as you're discerning who God is and as you're studying who God is and let's say you reach a point in your study of God let's say you're reading a deep theologian who's opening your mind and opening your eyes to the beauty and glory and majesty of God to the mind of God and then remind yourself when you're there these are just the edges of his ways just the mere fringes of God you know uh, I like what uh, I like the analogy that John Piper gave once he said he was reflecting on the life of John Owen, who was a very rigorous, studious Puritan, okay? And he said that John Owen's life was like a man climbing up a mountain, going out to mountain ranges and climbing up to the top of a mountain, pulling himself over and looking up. And he had reached the top, the mountain top of this mountain. But then what did he see behind it? But an endless succession of mountain peaks that you could climb forever and ever and ever. And that's the way that God's knowledge really is. It is infinite. It's absolutely infinite.
Chris, you, you have can something? Can we read Romans eleven thirty-three? We didn't, and it's in my notes, so that's you know. I can just read it. I'm glad that you're there. It says, "Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways." That's right. That's right. Amen. So, getting back to um, just the uh, the quality of knowledge that God has given us, so that we know that our knowledge is certain knowledge. We have true knowledge of God. When we say the knowability of God, God is knowable. Um, I want to quote some verses to you, um, John. Well, let's let's get some people reading. Okay, uh, John, maybe you can read. Uh, you can read uh, John seventeen. You knew that was coming. John seventeen three, right? Josh, you want to read? You want to read a First John five twenty? First John five twenty and um, Scott, all the way in the back. Can you read for us Jeremiah nine? Jeremiah chapter nine, twenty three and twenty four. Just this idea that well, the knowledge of God that we have is real knowledge. I mean, it's it's sufficient knowledge to know Him. It's sufficient sufficient knowledge to have a relationship with Him. It's sufficient knowledge to have salvation. Chapter nine, nine. verses twenty three and twenty four. Okay, brother John. Uh, John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that uh, they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's right. That's right. Josh? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's right. Thus says the Lord. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. So it's not just... Um, it's not just knowing things about God, right? That passage in Jeremiah very much so educates our understanding of the other passages that it's not just that we're talking about knowing things about God, facts. You can be an atheist and know facts about God, right? I mean, we educate atheists all the time <laughs> and tell them wonderful things about God that they reject adamantly, okay? But they still know it. They still have a knowledge of they were to be quizzed. Someone, you know, they'd be able to answer those questions probably very accurately some of them but the knowledge of god goes beyond a simple mere uh you know uh, uh you know mental assent of who god is uh, it's not just knowing god in your mental faculties it's knowing god as a deeper knowledge right uh, when scripture talks about knowing god what does it mean to know god you know j.i packer wrote the book knowing god is he just talking about knowing stuff about god of course not what is he talking about? Anyone? Anyone? Relationally. Relationally. Okay, that's one way of putting it. Intimate. Intimately. Okay. How else do we know God? Relationally, intimately. Theology, theologically, we know God. Um, and to know God, what does that mean in the Bible? Let's think of, let's just, just throw everybody out. <laughs> Let's just think biblically, right? As biblical theologians. In the Bible, what does it mean for a person to know God? To be in relationship with Him? Okay. Right? It says, I think of, of the 
teaching would be that um, from Genesis, you know, the, the word to know means like as Adam knew his wife, so God, God knows us intimately. Yes. John? I just said yada, but it just came to my mind. And what is yada? That's very good. He, you know, this is, a, this is a Hebrew word, right? Yada. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to write it in the Hebrew. I think it's something like this. Uh, yada. That might be right. Yeah, I think that is right. Uh, so how do you, how do you, um, how do you describe this word yada? When the Hebrews said that they yada God, or God yada them, what did that mean? Oh, God knows who you are. He knows about you, where you live, your address. Well, God knows everybody that way. <laughs> so is this a special type of love? And what is God's special type of love for his people? I've said this a million times. John, I can't believe you haven't, you haven't guessed it by now. <laughs> it, it means that he's in a relationship with God, right? That we're in a relationship with God, right? But what type of relationship is that? That's right. That's the golden ticket right there. Okay. The covenant. That you are in covenant relationship with God. You know? It just blows my mind to think that God, God is a, first of all, God invented his own covenants, did his own thing, said, I'm a covenant-keeping God. The children of Israel for thousands of years, they knew God to be a covenant-keeping God, and that's how they celebrated God, who he was. And so for them to know, to yada who God is, meant that in their mind, their knowledge of God, their intimate relationship, their intimacy with God was on a covenantal level. <laughs> Which means what? What does it mean to be in covenant with God? You are. You're in covenant with God right now. What does it mean? What are some of the benefits of being in the covenant relationship with God? Robert? He will not break it. Very good. Because he made it with himself. Very good. Benefit yes. is eternal life for us. Yeah. That's selfish on my part, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's a good deal, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great deal for us. That's right. And God benefits by being glorified. Yeah. Well, it means that we can know him as we are being known. Right. I mean, I just think of, uh, you know, uh, Ephesians, where he gives if, uh, the example of marriage being between Christ and his church. That's a covenant. So he started from day one with a covenant in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And now that that, that covenant was messed up, he's carrying over. Now he's got his church that he's covenanted with uh, to, to conform them to the image of Christ. The, back to the Imago Dei. Yeah, back to the yeah. reparation of the Imago Dei so that the best and highest form of us as individuals is going to be being conformed. And he's going to be forever faithful to conform us to that image. Yeah, imago Dei uh, is the Latin word that just means image of God. Okay. And that's right. The Bible is really fascinating on this, on this point right here. That if you think about it, you take your Bible, right? You open up the book of Genesis, and what do you find in chapter 1? The imago Dei. Right? Man and woman, he created them in his image, right? And then, it's, it's very interesting, but that the image of God language 
sort of dissipates after Genesis. It falls away, it falls behind, and then it vanishes. You don't see it really anywhere in the prophets. You don't see it anywhere in the writings. The image of God language is gone. Then it re-emerges when? With Christ. With the new covenant, with Christ, with, with the New Testament. It emerges when God is disclosing, number one, who is the image of God, Jesus Christ, and that he is bringing us back into the image of God through Jesus Christ. And this has everything to do with knowing God. So we've really reached the highest point of the knowledge of God. We talk about the knowability of God, and it begins with revelation. God reveals himself so that we can know him, and then it moves to knowing the various attributes of God, who God is, and our knowledge of him. And then it reaches the climax of that knowledge in a covenant bond. There's a, new, there's a book that came out. It's called Sacred Bond, talking about covenant theology. And I would say unbreakable bond. That is what the covenant relationship that we have with God is like. Yes, sir. I think in Genesis 1, it says that man and woman were created in the image of God correlates with Hebrews 1.3, where it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Correct. I think those would be good. Excellent. Parallel verses. That's right. One's kind of imperfect in some way. Right. We're not a perfect image of God. Right. And then foreshadowing. Correct. Christ, who is the perfect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's why I disagree. There are some theologians that would say man is the image of God. Uh, talk about Gordon Clark. I've heard Clark say that. Man is the image of God. He is not in the image of he, I said, no, that's wrong. I don't think that's right. Even lexically, I don't think it's right. I think what it's saying is that man is created in the image of God, and that the, the, the actual... Uh, equivocation of that statement or that's not even right but the appositional you know construction of that statement meaning Jesus is the image of God okay that does not come until Christ you know so I think that's almost theologically you know um, sort of destructive because it doesn't draw out what the Bible's trying to show you why would we need to be conformed to that image if we already are if we already are the image of God which of course we're not yeah. You know, well, that's interesting too. But uh, I was listening to some uh, teaching on the Pentateuch and the Ten Commandments. The image of God is what uh, some of those uh, some of those things that were happening in the Ten Commandments and how they were being was because we were to preserve ourselves for the worship of the true God, mostly manifest in this in in Jesus Christ in His appearing. Mm-hmm. that he was going to, you, know I mean? you know what I'm saying? Like the summation of the law would be in Christ himself. So you don't have to have a great many image. You have a person to wrap your theology around so you're not violating those commandments because Christ is the summation of that. Yeah. Do we worship an image? Yes. Jesus Christ. He is an image. There's a commandment that says make no images, right? Right. Is an image inherently evil? No. It's what, what meaning you assign to it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Idolatrous images. Right? So we're not to be idolatrous. We can't have any image idol of God that is not, that is not uh, uh, um, 
you know, because it doesn't reflect who God is. But Jesus does. Hebrews chapter 1. The exact representation of who God is. So that's, that's why people would say. <laughs> but that also doesn't mean draw that also doesn't mean carry around a picture of Jesus. That's not what that means. Okay? Right? We're worshiping the image of God in Christ. See, it's a personal, it's a personal relationship, not some sort of, you know, uh, devotion to a picture or a portrait. I don't even like pictures of Jesus. I personally don't like that. I don't, big, I don't know. Is, there a violation of the is that, is that, yeah, I mean, is, is there a violation of the violation? Second Commandment to have that? Well, maybe you should close, <laughs> maybe you should close in prayer. <laughs> Turn the recording off. I think the principle. I think the principle certainly is there. I mean, I, I mean, I, I personally would be very much against putting a big old portrait of Jesus in our church. You know what I mean? I think that would communicate the very, very wrong thing. You know, and I think yes. I guess if I had to die on that hill, yes, you are violating that principle of making an image. God told you not to make an image of God. You know what I mean? And we should not be making images of Jesus. You know. So I mean, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be legalistic about it, you know, in that sense. I mean, well, you'd die in the hell for it. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's just it makes me uncomfortable. I mean, does it make you uncomfortable? See, I like uh, I like Ben Hur, you know, uh, because Ben Hur, Jesus comes out, but they never show his face. You know, they kind of just show him, in the, you know, from beyond. That's more reverent. You know, I like that better. Anyway. So you would disagree with the passion of the Christ? Yes, I would, even though I watched it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would prefer not to have any images of God at all. You know, that, that probably is better. You know, so, so there it is, guys. There is the knowability of God, and we needed to sort of establish that because if God is not knowable, then whatever we're saying about his communicable or incommunicable attributes next week, Lord willing, is really meaningless, right? Because if God is not knowable, if our knowledge is not certain, if we don't have true knowledge of God, then whatever we talk about the attributes of God, I mean, we could be wrong. And it could be all for nothing. And we could be sitting in this room, you know, for no good reason at all. But because we do have, you know, a certainty, because we do have assurance that the things that we know about God are true because they're in his word, he has given it to us by his spirit, he reveals it to us, then we can proceed with the knowledge of God. You know, any final questions before we go? I like also the, uh, how God is transcendent that is in Revelation that you, know, you compare it to other um, the other religions of the Near East, ancient Near East and that was like that's like one of the big things that made um, that, that the real God is different in his transcendence all the other gods would never transcend and enter into the creation there's always the separation remember um, that, well, that would be like condescend huh? that would be condescend for him to come to the creation, transcend would be he's above the creation. He's above, yeah, but he beyond know, it. But he would enter into it as well. Yeah, that would be condescension. Okay, I'm using the wrong word. Right, and we were talking about that. Yeah. Transcendence. That's right, because if God is so transcendent, he's so beyond us that he's ultimately unknowable. Then we're doomed. You know what I mean? Because we're in darkness and we can't know truth. You know. But praise be to God that he has revealed himself and come near to us, you know. He's chosen to dwell among us, tabernacle with us. So, amen. Let me pray for you guys.